Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What would NPR look like you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? I think the mission would still be the same, but how we do it would be to leverage the varieties of ways that people interact with content. And so you've seen that with on-demand audio, with podcasting, what we've done on social platforms like you know, YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. So I think we'll be making this kind of content that basically is about ideas, events, culture, things to make people just more enriched people. And we'll do it through you know, whatever the technological platforms of the day are. Michael Smith, NPR's chief marketing officer on the golden age of audio amid the disruption of radio. Actually, what is radio? Stay with us. Enjoy this show on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Joining me is Michael Smith, Chief Marketing Officer at NPR. He has more than 30 years of experience in entertainment, brand marketing, digital and revenue generating brand extensions. He was previously Senior VP of Marketing, Creative and Brand Strategy for Food Network, uh, Senior VP and General Manager of Cooking Channel and the Food Category Brand Extensions uh, at, for Scripps Network. Uh, am I allowed to call it National Public Radio or should I not call it National Public Radio? No, I, we go by both names. It's still, it's officially National Public Radio. Uh, although, you know, what we are today is much more a, uh, a media company you know, on multiple platforms. Our fastest growing platforms are our podcast you know, on-demand audio platform and then our digital, whether it's NPR.org or the NPR app or the NPR One app. So uh, we're you know, really more of a multi-platform uh, audio company. Well, as you know, I've been stoked to have you on the show. I got in touch when you were hired and you were named and brought into this position. And take me back uh, to April, I guess. Talk about a baptism by fire, right? When you're done interviewing and you're given the author, we're, we're, we're thrown into remote work and lockdown immediately. Yeah, you know, it, th- there's actually a silver lining to it when you're trying to onboard into a company, especially a company as multi-layered and complex as, uh, as NPR, is that um, without having to be in the office, you end up being able to just focus on a bunch of individual meetings with people, both within the organization. And we have 264 member stations around the country. So being able to contact them and interact with them as well over Zoom calls, um, it's was really efficient. I was able to you know, probably do six or seven meetings a day, 30 or 40 meetings a week. I mean, just um, a really great opportunity to meet hundreds of people in the organization during the first couple of months. So it helped me really understand the, the, the nuances and the layers of, of the organization and, and uh, just a great, you know, great initiation. I mean, the part you missed, though, obviously, is the, is the sort of in-person relationship building uh, human human part of it, but in terms of understanding how to connect all the dots of NPR, uh, remote work was actually um, an advantage. So I see in your bio, Michael Smith, that your career began with affiliate relations with CBS. You were working to strengthen relationships between local stations and the national network. And for our listeners who don't quite understand or they hear they think that public radio is just synonymous with national public radio and maybe marketplace is brought to you by national public radio or Prairie Home Companion or This American Life, when in fact, there are many different degrees of uh, content production. You talked about 264 member stations. Explain what exactly NPR is. I know there's that mothership near Union Station in D.C., but it's comprised of, you know, you talk about almost 300 member stations and dozens and dozens of independent content creators as well. To understand NPR, you have to kind of go back to the history of how it was formed. Back in the 1960s, there were you know, hundreds of educational and uh, community-based radio stations around the country who were providing you know, enriching um, uh, content. And one of the challenges they had, though, was creating a national news network or a national news program. Um, and uh, you know, they all had their own, own local shows. So the stations got together and, and said, let's figure out how we can create a, a national news broadcast and let's co-op together and, you know, share resources. And let's create a nonprofit actually called the NPR that would produce this national show. And then we will share this show across all the stations. So that's what how NPR works. We produce, uh, the first show was called All Things Considered, which was an afternoon news show. And then a few years later, it was followed by a show called Morning Edition. And those 
two shows were really the bulk of NPR for the first 20 years. And those shows are distributed out to 264 different local, what we call member stations. And those stations uh, get support from member listeners in their communities who donate to the stations. And they also sell some sponsorship messaging within the uh, within the shows. And then they pay dues, membership dues back to NPR, which helps us produce those shows that we distribute to them. So that that that's the core of NPR. And then in maybe about 10, 15 years ago, as the podcasting uh, medium began to emerge, NPR was a pioneer in that. And we started, you know, because we are the, the, the nation's largest audio journalism company. And so we started producing podcasts and that business has really expanded over time. And so when you, and then we've really built them out of the radio content, we built a lot of what we call just digital web content, where you, the stories that you hear in radio shows are available as, you know, as stories uh, on our npr.org website. Uh, and then in recent years, we've, we've um, started to publish on platforms like YouTube and um, Facebook and, and, uh, uh, and Instagram. So explain for our listeners out there, if you're really psyched about, you know, I hear Morning Edition and say a Stevens Keep interview blows me away or a, a, a series, a, a body of investigative work. It's not like I can cut a check and donate it to NPR or earmark it to Morning Edition or All Things Considered. NPR's funding comes from three primary sources. Uh, one of the ways is through the, the donations people make to their local stations. And as I mentioned before, the stations pay dues to NPR for our content. So money comes from those donations back to NPR. The second source is that there are corporate sponsors who buy messages in our content. And then the third source of revenue for NPR is from uh, what we call philanthropy through foundations and other major donors. But there's no direct way. I mean, uh, you know, N NPR is a consortium of member stations. I mean, there's almost that, I don't want to call it feudalism, but it's kind of a repatriation system where the best way you could support NPR writ large is to support your member station. It's not like you can cut out that that middleman, especially if you're consuming the stuff digitally. Yeah, you know, we, we look at it as 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 a network, uh, a local, a unique local national hybrid network. And that's really the power of NPR. I think it's what sets it apart from a lot of other media organizations is that it's we're not national, we're not we're local, we're, we're, we're both. And, and, you know, when you experience us on radio, you're listening to the national shows, but you're also listening to, to locally produced content with, you know, with relevant stories from your community. And then when you in the, interact with this uh, on our website, uh, you'll see stories mostly from our national desk, but we also uh, receive journalism and stories from our member stations, which we incorporate in our, in our national coverage. And, and in podcasting, for example, we launched a podcast this year called Consider This, which is the first national local hybrid podcast. And what it does is it's the first 10 minutes of the podcast is national content from NPR. And then the last five minutes of the podcast is locally produced content, which is inserted at the, uh, at the local level. So for example, if you live in Washington, DC, you'll hear 10 minutes of, of national content. And then the last five minutes will be content from WAMU. Um, so uh, we're really committed to, the, the, to, the, to this unique national local hybrid approach. Now, as we know, with 2020, it accelerated so many trends. They say some people thought maybe by five, six, seven years. I mean, we've taken quantum leaps in video conferencing and e-commerce. And I was thinking about this when uh, it was uh, Neiman Lab ran this article late in the summer. Radio listening has plummeted. NPR is reaching a bigger audience than ever. What gives? And I was uh, reading down. It says in total, 57 million listen or watch or read NPR content each week, up 10% from this time last year. Unique weekly visitors to NPR.org increased 94%. Smart speaker streams and on-demand audio increased 29%. Live stream listeners up 39%. NPR app usage up 22%. And then these changes have implications for NPR's bottom line, which, as you explained, draws on a mix of underwriting, member station fees, government funds, and donations. Uh, so what's stunning is for the first time you're seeing, uh, you know, revenue uh, eclipse uh, the traditional kind of member station repatriation model. You're getting it from other sources, from podcasting, from corporate underwriting. This was certainly a year of inflection. Yeah, I think a couple of things are going on. Uh, as in recent years, we've seen 
the sponsorship revenue that we receive from podcasts grow dramatically as the as the space has grown and that revenue is starting to eclipse the revenue that we traditionally have received from member station dues so that that that's a uh, a big shift for us uh in terms of the usage uh, or, or the engagement with npr definitely we've seen a big jump in the amount of engagement on npr.org you know our website and then in people downloading and listening to our podcasts and that has been that growth has been outpacing the growth in radio listening and in this year has been a really unique year because you know most radio listening happens in cars uh and during commutes during the morning drive time and afternoon drive time and then the pandemic with so much work work from home going on has really reduced commuting and if you look at the number of vehicle road miles traveled and you look and you kind of graph that over the year, you'll it really reflects our radio audience, which saw a huge decline in late March and into April and May as you know as as the country was locked down. Uh, we st we're starting though to see a steady increase in radio listening now as people are returning to the office and you know are starting to drive more. So we think radio will, will recover. You know, it was on a trend, relatively flat, just slight declining trend, just as. And younger people are, tend to listen to more on-demand audio and less traditional radio. But radio is very, you know, it's been very resilient for us, and it's you know still a big part, and will always be, I think, a big part of, of, of what we do. But where the big growth has been has been on digital platforms, whether it's NPR.org or whether it's through our podcasts. Now, Michael, with a nod to your experience in affiliate relations with CBS, how are you holding the member stations' hands and management in general to say, guys, this is going to be wrenching, it's going to be difficult, uh, the, the transition to digital and on-demand, both you know, demographically, generationally, but it's something you have to do. You can't just rely, even on an actuarial basis, on, let's say, the 60-something-plus people who would reliably send a check every year. That's a diminishing pool. I think our, our stations understand... And see the same changes that that, that we see, uh, and they, you know, it, and we there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of attention gets put on NPR and our podcasting and our and our digital website growth. But at the local station level, they're they're also innovating digitally. And you know, a lot of stations now are, are are introducing their own podcasts. A lot of them are putting a lot more attention on their local websites and publishing, uh, you know, more frequently and extensively um, to those. So I think local stations like NPR are redefining themselves as local media organizations and not just local radio stations. In, in fact, in many local markets, especially smaller markets, you're seeing the decline and disappearance in some markets of local newspapers. And so the stations realize that they have a huge role to play and a need to, to really step up and be kind of the core uh, local information source in their communities, and whether they do that through the radio content or through digital content or podcasting, uh, you know, they, I think they, they're seeing that opportunity. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Michael Smith, NPR's chief marketing officer. He's had that job since April of 2020. What a fateful time uh, to join. But in, indeed, uh, it's it's been a time to learn everything on the fly. Indeed, many of your shows, uh, you know, I could tell you, for example, here and now, Peter O'Dowd uh, is is doing that out of Arizona. People who would otherwise be in the studio at Boston University on ComAv are remote. Everybody has had to learn how to do all this stuff remotely and and iron out the kind of the the kinks in real time. I've listened to the NPR Politics podcast. It's probably my favorite podcast. And many a time, somebody's child run in or somebody's dog you know run in and make a cameo, and that's just something you have to take warts and all this year. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found interesting about the remote. Uh, work culture has been sort of the, how we've injected hum the human side into it. You know, whether it's like you said, dogs running in during people's recordings, or there's you know the kids running in during Zoom calls. I used to use the, those um, digitally generated Zoom backgrounds a lot uh, earlier in the year because I just thought they looked you know pretty, and I, we have custom ones with NPR on them and everything, but I, <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I stopped using right. them because I realized one of the, the nicest things about Zoom calls is seeing where people are, you know, seeing the backgrounds, their homes, their environments, if they're outside. Seeing my sweatpants or my bathrobe, <laughs> the, the selection I have in sweatpants and bathrobe, to be honest. Yeah, because, you know, we, I think we, we miss that as human beings, you know, we don't have the, 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 the water cooler talks in the office or, you know, the ability to go to lunch with our coworkers. So it's sort of finding those moments uh, of humanity. And uh, uh, I think that 
that's something that that uh, has been really interesting about the sort of work from home culture. Michael Smith, I have to geek out with you in that I'm a huge NPR One fanboy. This is the app. That t- to me, I plug it every week on the show. Uh, it picks up my RSS feed. I love it. I can't live without it. You know, especially with the Bluetooth in the car, you feel like a a, a rich person every time. It just it just gives you the news update with Lakshmi Singh at the top of the hour. It kicks me over to here and now. It gives me a little bit of inskeep. It gives me a little a bit of Mary Louise Kelly. Throws in some WNYC. You know, old school when I was in New York for a decade. But I do wonder why you guys don't seem to promote this app. Is there a political undercurrent to this that if you promote digital direct to digital too much, it could potentially alienate the member stations whose traditional, I say, comparative advantage was the fact that they had the tallest antenna in town, that we were all beholden to uh, terrestrial coverage. Now we all kind of have our own antenna in the vehicle. We take this stuff on the road. No, you know, I think NPR One is something that stations uh, – I think really embrace and realize the benefit that it provides to them. Because if you think about it, the NPR one, the first thing that you hear when you open the app is your local station, you know, there's a message from your local station and uh, your local station audio feed is built into the app and content from local station is, is prominently featured. Uh, So the, the idea behind the app is to create this, national local hybrid experience mixing local content with national content and, and trying to do it in a very personalized way so uh so, so so to your question about promotion no we we do we we do promote it i i think the question is about consumer behavior and you know our goal is to touch as many people and influence as many people with our positive content and so we have to be sensitive to where people are going to consume content and how they want to consume content. So there are some very passionate super fans who love the NPR One experience and will always be supporting them through through NPR One and, and innovating with the app to do that. But the vast majority of people like to consume their audio, uh, you know, on platforms or you know through their podcast apps or uh, on social media platforms. And so we have to. Uh, you know, our goal is to just to be where people want us to be. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it is recently, as this is an omnivorous app and it brings in stuff from American public media, it brings in things from Gimlet, which was started by a bunch of, I think they were called NPR apostates who went off and Spotify bought them. You have Wondery apps and everything. Uh, most recently, while listening to this, I'm struck by how many times you get the interstitial message that says, this show is not made by NPR. Uh, in fact, more than I can remember having this app. And it brings to mind the question that does this dilute kind of what used to be the NPR aesthetic, that it used to be something that was really the province of Morning Edition, all things considered, Fresh Air, uh, some of those signature shows that now that you've had the boom, the surge, the, the enormous explosion in podcasting over 10 years, it's so hard to keep that in-house. People go off, they join startups. It's not just, you know, NPR Central and the affiliate stations that are creating this sound. There are many private players out there doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, the the sort of information nonfiction audio space is uh, it's been one of the amazing growth stories of the last you know five or ten years. Uh, I think you have to step back and think about what NPR's mission and reason for being is, and which is to you know to basically create a more informed public based on the idea that if you have, if, if people are more informed about their world, they'll be better citizens and we'll have an overall a better democracy. So, you know, that's why we're here and what we're trying to do. And uh, whether, you know, other people get into the space uh, with us or not, uh, doesn't really Im- impact our core mission. Uh, you know, we're not a for-profit company looking at it as, as a as sort of a zero-sum competition uh, uh, game. We're looking at it as what can we do to help create more informed and, uh, you know, and just better citizens in, in America. So if other people are doing that as well, that's great. And, uh, but, uh, you know, we were created, if you go back to the 1960s with the, with the um, Public Broadcasting Act to create uh, things that the commercial system didn't serve. 
you know, serve, you know, diverse audiences, messages, you know, I mean, you know, stories and things right. that, that, uh, if you look at just the incentives of, uh, profit driven media, you know, are often ignored. And so those are the gaps that we've always filled. So the, as the commercial landscape changes, you know, it may change where we feel like we need to, uh, to play. Although I think the, the you know, the, the, the core of what makes us, I think valuable is the fact that we offer, you know, really smart fact-based uh deep dive journalism and if you look at the landscape today there's so much polarization whether it's you know left-wing media right-wing media there's so much misinformation on social media so there's an increased i think demand and and value for just fact-based you know true true information and we'll continue, you know, that's what, that's what our, our mission is all about. I know that you were exceedingly proud when uh, around Thanksgiving, just after Thanksgiving, Apple Podcasts picked Code Switch of NPR as the best audio show of 2020. I mean, you know, Shireen and Gene, I remember when this was an uphill battle with traditional management and they signed off on everything. And now it's kind of mandatory appointment listening on NPR, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, whatever it is. What then do the member stations do with this bit of information? The fact that now you have in-house uh, something that's, you know, a golden property that sponsors are going to want to be part of increasingly, that Apple has sh shining the spotlight on. But people, I imagine, disproportionately get it on demand. They're not getting it through member stations. Yeah, I mean, Code Switch is a show that has been a podcast. It's not hasn't hasn't been a radio show, but you know the, the uh, exciting news for stations is that we are going to make the show available as a radio show in 2021 for for, for member stations um, to run. Um, it requires a little bit of reformatting to make it fit uh, an hour long radio broadcast, but but uh, yeah, I, I think stations I think stations feel like. Uh, um, you know, we're all in the, in this mission, in this mission driven, uh, mode of trying, you know, I'm saying, you know, over and over again, but about trying to bring really quality content and, you know, enriching content, uh, to Americans. And so I think whether NPR is doing that on a national level, you know, and stations are doing it on a local level, I, I haven't sensed in the time I've been at NPR, this sort of tension or, 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 you know, turf war. Uh, I've really been encouraged by this sort of shared commitment to the overall mission and realizing that we all play different parts in, in making that mission a reality. You know, we do it more on the national level and stations do it more on the local level. And then, you know, we've been doing it uh, you know, more on the on-demand space. But as I said before, you know, they uh, stations have been getting more aggressive with their on-demand offerings as well, you know, learning a lot from us. We, we do a lot of um, whether it's training and technical support to help stations become more digitally focused. So, uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't sense, uh, uh, as, you know, that, 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 that tension between us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Smith. He is Chief Marketing Officer at NPR. I love your LinkedIn profile, actually, where you introduce yourself as, I know a little about many things, and a lot about what I still don't know. Uh, you are widely followed, and I actually like some of the stuff that you post. Um, on, on all of these different brands uh, privately that are coming out with their uh, streaming menus, for example, you know, Discovery Plus, what it will and won't have, uh, where you compare the price point to what Hulu offers and the Discovery Curiosity stream, and it also doesn't help. You wrote that a lot of their star talent is in their 40s and 50s, while most cord cutters are under 40. I have to step back from this and ask you generally about this incipient idea of login fatigue, as all of these giant media companies maybe belatedly come to the realization that the future is in streaming and OTT over the top. They're all coming out and, and telling us, you know, wait, if you're going to smash apart the cable bill or the media consumption bill, throw us $10, throw us $12. At what point are there too many apps? At what point do I just start to tune out? I don't need a Netflix. I don't need a Hulu. I don't need a Disney Plus. I don't need, you know, what, what is the, what is the kind of the breaking point where I'm really just putting the cable package bill back together in the end? Well, I think the, the two things, one, I don't think you're putting the cable package back together again, because if you think about the cable package, it was, you know, 70 or 80 or even 150 channels 
uh, it all bundled together. Most of them you didn't watch, uh, and, and most of them were not things that you were interested in. It's very, it's, it's very different from being able to create your own customized bundle of things that, that are interesting to you. And I think what will happen is that people will probably spend as much or maybe even more as they were spending on video entertainment content during the cable age. But the difference will be the things in their bundle will be things that they, they want and that are, that are interesting to them. Uh, in terms of how many people will buy, you know, I, I use the analogy of if you would walk into your closet, you know, how many different shirts do you have? You know, how many different pants do you have? How many different uh, pairs of shoes do you have? Do you just stop at two or three? I mean, I think most people have many, many, many you know d different things. Um, but the difference is, is that your closet is very different than my closet. Well, in a pandemic, we're not wearing any of them, but I, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but your closet is very different than my closet. And so what we're seeing is it's not a transformation um, from people just you know paying for a bundle the same bundles uh, just in new ways with 12 different bills. You know, what we're seeing is people having individual choice to kind of uh, cobble together their own tailored um, set of entertainment products. And the interesting thing is that you know most of the other product categories in the world, you do that. Like I said, I mentioned clothes, whether it's food, you know, the restaurants you go to, the, the travel you do, it's all very personally curated. And nobody ever says, wow, you know, um, how many different restaurants will people go to you know how many different uh boxes of the brands of cereal but i don't know if i don't know if it's a i don't know if it's a one-to-one -one analogy i mean you know there's some uh marketing and business school people who would call this like a multi-homing problem how many credit cards do you need in your wallet right maybe one or two i mean every department store every brand wants you to sign up for their specific credit card because there are you know they get to capture the rents and they get to control the experience but I, you know, maybe it's a different thing on your phone or on your tablet, but how many different apps, how many different ways? It's one thing for me to go on Amazon and be able to buy anything or, or the Apple Store uh, on demand a la carte. It's another thing to ask me to if I want to get a specific podcast, I have to have the Wondery app or I have to have this app or I have to have Spotify in addition to Apple Podcasts or some might just be behind Stitcher or I need a special subscription to the New York Times to get another version of the Daily. At some point, you hit up against this fatigue. I can't keep up with where everything is stored. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is um, the rationalization of the products. Um, yeah, with the credit cards, obviously – Credit cards all provide relatively the same functionality, the ability to purchase things you know, universally at, at, at stores and you know, vent, merchants around the world. Uh, how, what is the real difference between a MasterCard or a Visa or a Discover card? They all kind of do the same thing. So you're right. There's a limit to how many you can have. Now, if video services were all the same, it, and the idea is that you know, in fact, you look at music services, Spotify and Apple Music, they all have the same music. So there's a limit you know, to, to, to what's, the, what's the, the utility to consumers of, of, of having multiple ones. I think what will happen, though, as happens in other product categories, is that products have a specific utility, that you know, a specific need and, and, and market focus and, you know, and value prop that's uh, differentiated. And when you have that, then people will have a reason to have multiple ones. We're in the early, we're just in the you know 1.0 days of streaming, so we kind of have these, you know, these sort of big box services that all kind of have the same kinds of things, and they don't really, you know, they aren't that differentiated yet. It's like, like you said, it's like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. They all have action movies, and they all have, you know, some dramas, and they all have some romances, and but yet they don't have all of them. And why do I need, you know, but I think it's going to get a little bit more um, focused. If you think about social media, you know, we started out with kind of a one mega mall social media destination, Facebook. Then we had one that was more focused on video, YouTube. But now we're starting to see much more uh, focus on a specific value proposition. So whether it's TikTok, you know, with, with music, with, with, um, with short music videos, or it's Pinterest, you know, um, with with pinning things, or it's you know Twitter with um, conversations, or it's Snapchat, um, you know. Now there's you know 15, 20 different social media platforms, you know, LinkedIn that that but they found a particular uh, value prop that's differentiated from the other ones, and so you know people, most of us have you know accounts on Snapchat and LinkedIn and Pinterest and. Uh, you know, and uh, and TikTok and multiple ones, and we don't say, well, how many can we have? You know, so um, I think in video, 
we, we just haven't gotten yet to really differentiated products, but we will. I think the next wave will be streaming services that are really focused on people that are interested, say, in lifestyle content or really interested in, you know, for people who are interested in horror content or, or really interested in sports or really interested in news. And then you'll be able to curate a collection of kind of goes back to the magazine. I use this another analogy I like to, to, to say. So, you know, the early days of magazines, yeah, the magazines were kind of all mass, like Life magazine. You know, they were, it was a, it was a general mass book with multiple kinds of content in it. But then the, that industry started to become more focused and you had Time magazine and Sports Illustrated and you know, Field and Stream and Car and Driver. And people had multiple subscriptions to specific magazines that really super served their interests. And I think that's going to happen in the, um, in the video business as well. And I think in the podcast, podcasting business as well. I think, you know, we're, you know, we are uh, focused, you know, primarily on, on you know, information, news, um, uh, podcasts, you know, nonfiction podcasts. Uh, but there are all these other categories, you know, true crime, now scripted is starting to grow. And I think brands are going to start to, and studios are going to start to uh, differentiate and focus on certain genres. Michael, why can't I get in its entirety morning edition or all things considered kind of your, your cornerstone magazine shows uh, on the weekday as podcasts, just straight up? Like if I don't have the chance to listen to them live through my member station on my nightstand radio in the morning, why can't I just listen to it It's in, in its entirety uh, at noon in the car or at work? There are a couple of reasons. One has been a you know a careful management of um you know not wanting to to overtly cannibalize the radio listening habit uh and then the second one has been responding to how people really want to consume content on demand now as the time has gone on we've kind of we, we we've actually we said well let's just test it and see you know is this cannibalization problem as big as a problem as we think it could be. And then two, is there really as much an interest in consuming a three hour or four hour show uh, on demand? And we, uh, we tested full episodes of these shows uh, through our smart speaker uh, app. And we saw, you know, surprisingly to us, very low interest in listening to the, the, the shows on demand in their entirety. And it's told me that the way people want to consume this content on demand is really in short bites and in more modular ways where they can kind of really create their own experiences. So we have a suite of daily, what we call daily habit podcasts that sort of recreate the experience that you would get in you know morning edition or all things considered. And for example, we have one you know, up first uh, and consider this are two examples of that. Consider this is features a lot of the reporters from All Things Considered in a you know, very you know, tightly produced 10-minute podcast. And I mentioned before with a five-minute local segment at the, at, at the end, uh, which really takes a deep dive into you know, a, a couple of the day's news stories. Morning Edition is more of a uh, broad news update, and but again, in a nice tight 10-minute format. And then we have other daily podcasts that sort of replicate some of the segments that you hear on Morning Edition and All Things Considered. So, uh, for example, you know, the politics podcast is daily. Um, we have uh, you know, Pop Culture Happy Hour, which you know, gets into pop culture on a daily basis. Um, you know, the science po our science podcast, uh, Shortwave, um, you know, which publishes you know, daily. So, uh, you know, our Planet Money, the indicator, which is sort of the financial section of all things considered or, more, or morning edition, and that's a daily podcast. So if, if you look at it as I wanted, you know, every day I want a daily um, update and dive into these kinds of topics is the best way to do that, to play a three-hour news program on demand, or is it to consume the suite of podcasts that we have? Now, to what extent were you guys nudged by the innovation at the New York Times with their breakthrough hit podcast, The Daily? That this was something that, surprising, not only went to the top of the you know, iTunes charts, but you started to see member stations go out and 
pick this show up as well. Did that, for example, nudge innovation in 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 doing these offshoot shows of of Morning Edition and All Things Considered that are straight to podcast? The NPR News Update podcast, which is um, you know when you watch listen when you listen to NPR stations, you'll hear the little five minute you know little short news updates at the top of the hour. That's been a very popular podcast for years for us, and it's actually one of the you know, top, I think, top five podcasts in, in the country. So people often um, overlook that that podcast. No, but with Up First and Consider This. Yeah, I think Up First and Consider This. Yeah, I, I think the idea, um, you know, whether it's Today Explained, um, the, 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 this idea of daily uh, you know, kind of short, you know, relatively short podcasts that, that dive into, you know, one or two stories is definitely a trend that the yeah, New York Times has done a fantastic job. I think a lot of you know other publishers are seeing this. I mean, in podcasting is still in its. I, I would say, you know, it's in its toddlerhood. I mean, right, 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 right now. I mean, it, you know, for years, I guess it was what the late two two thousand seven, two thousand eight podcasting you know, when Apple launched the podcast app on the iPhone. It it started, but it was you know it was kind of quiet uh, and very niche. You know, more of a uh, young young men, a lot of tech podcasts, and then you know the public media became a big player. Um, you know, This American Life and other you know other shows like like that. But now we're really seeing an explosion in the kinds of genres, uh, you know, much broader um, range of genres, and then forms. You know, is it weekly? Is it daily? Is it ten minutes? Is it thirty minutes? Um, we're starting to learn a lot more about how people want to interact, especially as new audiences come into it. You know, and we're having a lot, a lot more uh, women coming into it, diverse audience. You know, African Americans, uh, Hispanics listening to podcasts. So, in fact, one of the things I find really fascinating is that we did some research recently that that said among Hispanics, the number one platform for consuming podcasts is YouTube. So. Um, that's making people think about, uh, you know, even the line between video and audio. You know, the, a lot of podcasts, like the Joe Rogan show, is extremely popular on YouTube. You know, where they do a, a, a video feed of uh, a recording of, of the podcast. So, um, still a lot of, you know, a lot of innovation and, and uh, evolution to come. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Michael Smith uh, since April of 2020, just as the lockdown took hold. He has been chief marketing officer of. NPR in past lives, he was at the Food Network and Scripps Network, and and a long, long time ago in affiliate relations at CBS. Uh, I would like to ask you if you can uh, look into your crystal ball and tell us what NPR writ large is going to look like in five or ten years. Yes, the member stations have resisted extinction for the longest time. The reports of their demise have indeed been greatly exaggerated, but. Uh, digital is digital, and we are all carrying smartphones, and we're all, you know, this is the golden age of audio, and we're voracious digital consumers. Tell tell us the things we don't know or, or we should know. For example, I've seen lots of great stuff. Of you have you have stories on Instagram that are wonderful. The way you you guys slice and dice your tiny desk uh, concerts, which are really a, a, a valuable franchise among a young demographic, where the likes of Taylor Swift or people with millions of followers on social uh, would love to show up for Pride of Place at NPR. Kind of walk me into the future somehow. Yeah, I, I would say you know let, let's go back to the beginning. You know when NPR was created, you know the mission was what kind of content needs to be created to fill the spaces that the commercially driven media landscape, you know, doesn't serve. And at that time, the two mediums, you know, primarily available, you know, was broadcast television, which PBS, uh, uh, you know, leads and then radio, which NP, you know, which, which NPR led. Now, we're, if you were to recreate NPR today, uh, the mission would still be the same, but how you would do it would be would be totally different, you know, because you're talking about audio and um, video and, di- like you said, digital and social and all these other ways that people consume content. So, if you say what would NPR look like, you know, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, I think the mission would still be the same, but how we do it would be to leverage the varieties of ways that people interact with content. And so and you've seen that with on-demand audio, with podcasting, what, we, what we've done on social platforms like you know YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. So I think we'll be making this kind of content that basically is about ideas, events, culture, 
things to make people just more enriched people. And we'll do it through you know, whatever the technological platforms of the day are. How do you further engage uh, and recruit uh, people of color, both in staff and in listenership? I'm thinking of the example of you know a pretty atrocious uh, uh, you know showdown at WNYC over uh, staff insensitivity over people being uh, uh, let go and pushed out. That that's been kind of litigated quite a bit. You can read it over the past three years of coverage, but even what happened at WAMU, the massive member station in Washington, D.C., over the summer, which resulted in the departure of the station chief. I mean, this seems to be an ongoing problem, um, and it's very difficult every year when NPR comes out with its uh, staff diversity audit. It seems like consistently, consistently, it's saying we don't have enough people of color on staff. We don't have enough diverse voices helping us put out a product that's reflective of, of NPR's mission? You know, it's a microcosm of a, of a, of a national issue, you know, a national challenge around inclusiveness, which has been going on for 250 years, you know, since the founding of the country, you know, the, that the principle, you know, of all men being created equal and America being a place for people to, you know, realize their dreams. Those are all great principles, but the problem is that we, you know, the only a small percentage of the population was included in that promise in the beginning. And over time, we've slowly included more and more groups, but we still have a long way to go. And I think what we see, you know, from time to time throughout history are these you know, are these flashpoints where we you know, sp- are reminded of, of you know of, of these gaps and and. Uh, and we're compelled to step up and do something about it. So I think we're seeing a reckoning. Obviously, this you know 2020 has been a significant year in that, and it's touched every you know all parts of American society. And I think in public media, yeah, we 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 have gaps. I mean, public media was started to speak with diverse voices, you know, lift up voices that were not being rec- represented in commercial media. And when you do a a report card on how we've done. You know, I think there there are gaps. I mean, if you if you if you say that the country is forty percent diverse right now, and yet the audiences uh, for public media are not forty percent diverse, uh, you know, the senior leadership um, at, across public media is not uh, as diverse as the country. Then there's a lot of work left to be done. Um, you know, how do you do that work? I think there, I think there are three things. I think you one, you have to bring bring people into the organizations, more uh, in more diverse uh, teams and staff at all levels. And when they come into the organization, provide mentoring and support that allow people to you know, thrive in their careers and rise to more senior levels. Because we do see more diversity at the, you know, at the lower levels, but still you know, bigger gaps at the senior levels. Um, two is then once people are in the organizations, what kind of content are we making? Uh, you know who, who are making the decisions uh, on what we feature and, and, and show, and how do you measure that, and how do you hold people accountable for that? So, so that's the second piece is you know, you know change what you make, and then the third piece, which is what I focus a lot on, is, is the marketing and, and branding piece, which is you know I think that public media actually has done a um, a better than probably recognized job. I mean, you think about the people who are in the organizations and the kinds of work that we do, but we just haven't marketed it. We haven't talked to Americans uh, broadly. We've been talking to ourselves for years. You know, we've been mostly promoting, you know, we don't, we don't, we've had, you know, as a nonprofit, we have a very small marketing budget. So most of our marketing is, is word of mouth marketing or promotion, cross promotion on our own shows or on our own radio stations about the things that we're doing. So there's a huge audience of people that I, th- I believe would love what we do, but just are unaware of it. We, we, in fact, we found that when people uh, are exposed to our content, especially diverse people, uh, they're surprised at, at the kinds of things that we make and the kinds of stories we tell. I mean, Code Switch is a perfect example of that. I mean, that's a show, like you said, that's been sort of under the radar since it started as a blog seven years ago and as a podcast four years ago. Uh, and in it, its audience actually was, even though it's a podcast about race and culture, its audience is is predominantly white, and that's just because we, we people were unaware, people of color were unaware of the show. But you know, fast forward to 2020, and the you know the national focus on these issues, there was so much 
know, what I called earned media around the show being, you know, uh, featured in articles and, and Jennifer Lopez tweeted it out as, as, a, as a show that people should listen to. And we actually were able to find some marketing money for the first time to do some national marketing behind the show. And you put all those things together and the audience, you know, tripled this year for that show. And then it all culminated with Apple naming it as podcast of the year. So, uh, so that, you know, that's why I'm hopeful for the future. I think we've done so much work in terms of the diversifying our, our staff, diversifying the voices and the stories that we tell and, and, and much credit to you know, people within the industry, you know, employees who have been speaking out and stepping up. Um, so I think there's a big, real transformation going on. Uh, now it's just a matter of making the broader public aware of the great, you know, the great uh, work that we do. I can tell you when I'm on the NPR one app, and by the way, all the all the peeps at here and now know it. I mean, one of my appointment listening things is uh, binging pizza in the car while I hit here and now. It's kind of my uh, pandemic indulgence, like you know, socially distanced pizza eating during terrestrial here and now listening. I joke with Tanya Mosley and everybody else about it, but that's that's the moment what I'm really exposed to radio. But when I'm on the NPR One app, I've been hearing a lot of promotion lately for Louder Than a Riot, which is billed on your site. Uh, on the NPR podcast directory, rhyme and punishment go hand in hand in America. Louder Than a Riot reveals the interconnected rise of hip-hop and mass incarceration. From Bobby Shmurda to Nipsey Hussle, each episode explores an artist's story to examine a different aspect of the criminal justice system that disproportionately impacts black America. I got to tell you, Michael, it's striking to hear that in the NPR ecosystem. It doesn't sound like something that would have been incubated and given the green light at the NPR of just a few years ago. Louder Than a Riot is, is sort of indica indicative of a process that's been going on in our cultural content for years. Um, it started back with All, All Songs Considered, which then led to Tiny Desk. And, uh, you know, the early days of Tiny Desk, it was... You know, it wasn't the most diverse you know, group of artists that we that we featured. And thanks to some really insightful and visionary young young employees, um, one of them uh, I'll give a shout out to Barbie Carter, an African-American who joined the music team years ago. Um, it's been a push to broaden the lens of the kinds of music that we uh covered on Tiny Desk and we started adding hip hop and, you know, and um, different, you know, um, Latin music forms and, uh, and just really broadening it out. And the success, I think, set us up to say, okay, what's next, you know, in our music journalism beyond, uh, you know, concerts, can we get into some of the things that we do in our news division, which is, you know, take a deeper dive into cultural issues and political issues. And so that's where Louder Than a Riot came from was okay well hip-hop is a you know very popular staple of what we do on uh, tiny desk and let's look at some of the you know, cultural and political ramifications of, of hip-hop and so it's hip-hop's relationship with the criminal justice system was a natural uh story point and so you know rodney and sydney who created that podcast uh you know um sees you know sees that story opportunity and then it's become a uh, yeah, I think a fantastic show. You know, in closing, uh, tell us how you can uh, fight back against these charges that, you know, it, it, it's unfounded, really, that NPR and PBS are wards of the state, that you see certain people running on defunding NPR when they hear something that they don't like, that it's a it's an outlet for, uh, you know, the liberal agenda. What can what's in your kind of your toolkit? Uh, your the, the arrows in your quiver to kind of fight back and say no, indeed we are are you know privately funded through listener donations and other methods that are in fact diversifying quite rapidly. Yeah, yeah, I think there there are a couple of things. I mean, the the first thing is that there is a misperception that we are federally funded. Uh, you know, less than two percent of our revenue comes from direct federal funding. I mean, the way it works is that the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, you know, receives money receives money from the from the US government, which is distributed to local radio stations. Now, some of that money, local radio stations do pay back to NPR in member dues. Uh, but, you know, again, that, that's that, that's not, you know, there's not direct funding uh, going uh, to NPR from the from the federal government. Um, the the second thing about the, you know, is NPR, uh, you know, left or right or, you know, down the middle or um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the greatest um, 
credit to us, to me, when we know we're doing the right thing is when we're getting criticism from both sides. And so, you know, we've received our, a fair amount of criticism uh, from the right on things that we've done this year, specifically around uh, some of the racial justice coverage. But we've also received uh, a lot of criticism from the left you know, about some of the coverage that we've done uh, about, you know, uh, supporters of the Trump administration and, and you know providing platforms for people to share their you know their their, their thoughts and ideas as well. So uh, you know our, we don't follow one side or or or, or, or um, promote from one side or the other. You know we're really about taking a close look at the facts and the truth and hopefully letting people make their own informed dis, um, decisions based on just giving people better information. I, I look at NPR. You know, like an audio public library. You can walk in there and whatever your interest or, um, you know, direction, you've got great, credible information that you can dive into and make yourself a more informed person about it. So, and that's, that, you know, that's what, that's what we'll continue to try to do. Michael Smith, Chief Marketing Officer at NPR. Uh, sir, I cannot wait to shake your hand when we do that again, God willing, when we're vaccinated and, and have lunch with you. I know your backlog must be enormous because after all, again, you started in April of 2020 and had to go remote immediately. But I'm tired of the Zoom and, and I miss human interaction. And I'd hope you'd take me up on a, on a lunch date sometime in post-vaccine 2021. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. I, I, I agree with you. It's, I mean, this, is, this is getting old. <laughs> But uh, yeah, next well, I hope to be in D.C. and in the office and having lunch uh, with you sometime late next summer. NPR's Michael Smith, come back on. Thank you. Okay, Robin. Thank you very much for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Subscribe to this show on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And hello to our radio listeners up in Northern Virginia and in Washington, D.C., and down in gorgeous Asheville, North Carolina. Follow Full Disclosure on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 